It's time to take your seat in the front row with Mike Vaccaro. Here's your host, Mike Vaccaro. Well, thank you, Chuck, and welcome. I am Mike Vaccaro in the front row with Mike Vaccaro here. Episode two about to happen here today. Uh, We do want to remind you, episode one posted last week. Hopefully you had a chance to watch that. If not, check it out if you would. It features Mike Vaccaro, not me, but New York Post sports writer Mike Vaccaro entertaining episode one for you. And as always, we remind you to subscribe to our YouTube channel as well, as we'll have more great guests throughout the year and just continue to learn about their sports journeys. Today, we're going to learn about the sports journey of a sports agent and what it takes to be an agent and what goes along with uh, being that Major League Baseball sports agent that Joe Rosen is. When you find out that uh, your guy gets called up, when you find out that your guy has been traded. So we have that coming up. And also, stay tuned to the very end. You don't want to miss it. Uh, we're talking iconic hip-hop groups that he had a chance to represent as well. So all that ahead, episode two of In the Front Row with Mike Vaccaro. Well, Joe, first of all, uh, we appreciate you joining us here today and uh, maybe educating a little bit, uh, us a little bit about uh, a sports agent, uh, you know, the role of the sports agent, certainly for you on the Major League Baseball side, but uh, thanks for joining us today. You got it. It's great to be here, Mike. Good to see you again. We're in in North Carolina. You're uh, up there in Boston and uh, getting ready for your day, I guess. But, you know, again, we want to learn about your background and, and what took you to this point to, to become a sports agent. And for you, you know, you're living in Boston right now, but you grew up in Delaware and and you played sports, as you were telling me earlier. Um, how much of a factor were, were sports in your life growing up as a young kid in Delaware? Uh, they were huge. I mean, you know, I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, near Philly. Um, I'm a Cowboys fan, so don't hold that against me. All, all, my, all my friends at home were Philly fans, of course, but... I grew up a Philadelphia fan in every other sport, really, except except I was a I was a big Cowboys fan. That's a story for another day. But it was something that I always wanted to do, Mike. Like you know, from the beginning was work in sports, and you know, I went to Syracuse. I was a broadcast journalism major when I was there. Um, you know, I kind of quickly realized that you know, in front of the camera wasn't going to be the right thing for me and, you know, kind of like explored other avenues. You know, I do remember back in high school when I was trying to figure out kind of what I wanted to do. And, you know, there weren't many agents back then, right? I mean, there, there was a couple. And I wrote a letter to a guy at Beverly Hills Sports Council, which is still around today, but I, the agent's not um, an agent anymore, I don't believe. This guy, Dennis Gilbert, I read an article about him in Sports Illustrated, I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I wrote a letter to him when I was in high school. Um, He never wrote back, but that's okay. But it kind of like, that was my first, you know, like understanding and, and, you know, I guess introduction to the world of of being a sports agent. And, but, you know, initial, initially my love was sports broadcasting. It's why I went to Syracuse and I had, you know, a number of internships there, but then I really, really liked the business side a lot more. So then I went to law school and, uh, you know, started my path on becoming a baseball agent. And when you were growing up, I know you played baseball, you played football as as well. When did it change in your mind that you figured, OK, I'm not going to play this professionally, so I have to look at, at something else and some other opportunities, but I still want to stay within the, the sports realm? Well, when I was in high school, I was a good baseball player. I wasn't a great baseball player by any means. I, I you know, I wasn't going to have any opportunities to play at a college, at, le- at least like a real, you know, D1 or, or, you know, that, you know, that type of school. Um, I was actually a better football player, but I was a 160 pound center. So like they, there's just not really room for those guys um, anymore. I wish I was kind of, you know, back then I was 160 pounds. I'm certainly not 160 pounds now. Um but, you know, when I played baseball, you know, one of my nicknames on my my high school team was stats. And, um, you know, when I wasn't playing or when, like, you know, we would be winning by a lot or whatever, like, I'd like to keep the book. I always loved to keep the book. And, you know, my my middle son, Jared, who's 14 now, um, he likes to keep the book now, too. And so I really got interested in the stats back then as a fan, as a player, everything um, you know, there weren't advanced stats back then, obviously. It was just the, you know, the typical ones, batting average, RBIs, home runs. Um, but, you know, as it progressed, I got really interested in the analytics side on, of that as well. And so, you know, we talked the other day a little bit about, like, why baseball? Um, 
And, you know, I'm a huge basketball fan, huge football fan, always been a huge baseball fan too. But I feel like the business of baseball and the, you know, the, the behind the scenes part of baseball, I just know the game much better. Like I can watch a football game. I can watch a basketball game. Um, you know, I, I know the players, I know what's going on. Obviously I know the history and stuff like that, but there's just a different level of the sport of baseball that I know. And what's kind of cool is I don't consider myself a scout. You know, I, I have a recruiter who works for us, who I kind of rely on. And I rely on a lot of the scouts, you know, in the area to give me information on players, but I've come, I've become, I mean, I've been an agent now for, you know, 16 years and I've become pretty good at sort of scouting, um, you know, looking at a pit, especially pitchers, looking at a pitcher, you know, everybody looks at velocity and all of that, but especially for a Northeast kid, New England kid, where I'm from, you got to go beyond, you got to go way beyond velocity and look at the arm action and the breaking ball and the size and, you know, determine, is he going to be a starter or a reliever, you know, effort, that type of thing. And, um, you know, that, that's the stuff I'm kind of most proud, you know, I'm a lawyer. I've always been, you know, I, I've always been, in, you know, I've done a lot of school. I, you know, I, I have a lot, a number of degrees, but I think like the thing I'm most proud of in being an agent is just the ability to scout a player. Um, I think that's the coolest thing. When you scout a player that maybe not, not a lot of agents are on, or maybe not even a lot of scouts are on and he becomes something you know big, that's kind of a really, really cool thing. Do you think that's something that sets you apart from other guys? Again, having played it and, and, and having that kind of knowledge to, to see what's out there with, you know, again, potential clients. I think, well, yes and no. I mean, there are a lot of, there are a lot of agencies out there that have guys just to do that. Um, you know, and we have, and we have, you know, like, you know, we had guys and we've had guys, um, you know, to just scout and, and that type of thing. But in terms of, I think it's just the more baseball you watch and I've watched a lot of baseball. I mean, you know, like I, the more baseball you watch, the more you get to know, you know, what you're looking for. And I will say the thing that I think sets me apart a little bit is the new England aspect of it. You know, there are not a lot of agents in new England. There's a few, um, but new England is a different world, right? Our season starts in April. It doesn't start in January. Um, you know, there's, you know, guys have a lot more bullets in the gun than say a kid from Texas or Florida who's towing all year round. And you have to evaluate a little differently and you have to prepare your players a little differently. I'm talking about on the, at the amateur level, because, you know, when they're, you know, most of the guys, like I, I visited with a, a high school player last night, you know, whose season starts in mid April. And, you know, there's some guys out there, you know, players in Texas, Florida, guys like that, that are starting in January. And they have three months in front of the scouts before your guy ever gets seen the first time. And you have to make sure that that first time they come out, the scouts are there and they're ready to go. Because if you have a guy the first time out who's like building up, building up, building up, and it's April 15th, and they go out there and they're 85 to 87, scouts may not come back. So it's just a different world. So, you know, in terms of scouting, I don't think that sets me apart, but I think the New England part of it does a little bit. Let's backtrack for a, for a moment here to Syracuse again. You go there, you thought you were going to get into broadcasting, and uh, you change your gears. Uh, you're smarter than me, certainly for for that. But uh, <laughs> and it was an internship that you said kind of opened your eyes a little bit. While it was a good internship, it, it still kind of made you think a little bit about what your career path was going to be. So you know, when I was there, I mean, I was around a lot of people. You know, it's really cool. And I mean, this is just to sidetrack a little bit is that. I still stay in touch with so many people that I went to Syracuse with and I was at Newhouse with, you know, including yourself, you know, Brad Como, who's at SNY, you know, Dave Pash, who, you know, you know, who's a fraternity, bro. He lived across the you know hall from me at Syracuse. And, you know, I got to see a lot of folks who were on air and what they were doing and how good they were. And I think I could have done it, but I don't think I would have been as good. Like, I, I just don't think it would have been my calling. Um, and you see, right, there's a lot of people out there that do it that aren't as good. And they just keep fighting and fighting and fighting. And, it, and it's hard. It's a really hard business. I mean, every every business is hard. But, you know, whereas a lot of folks in college went abroad, um, I did a semester in Washington, D.C. through the American, um, the Washington Semester Program at American University. 
And one of the main reasons I wanted to do it was, you know, I was so, I was so sports, sports, sports all the time. And it was 1993. Um, you know, Bill Clinton had just been elected. It was the semester of his inauguration. I thought being in DC, which has always been one of my favorite cities would be the coolest thing in the world. I worked for um, WTOP, which is the all news radio station in DC. Kenny Albert was actually the sports guy when I was there. I didn't really do any that much sports. It was more just, um, I was a reporter who couldn't go on air, right? Like I went out and, you know, recorded and, and, you know, interviewed and, and did like, you know, goofy stories. Like I went to like fairs and like, you know, goofy stuff, nothing serious. Um, I went to Capitol Hill a couple of times with other reporters. That was pretty cool. But you know, when, when I, I did a good job and when I left, I got offered a job or, you know, I mean, I was still a junior. So, or I was actually, I'm sorry. I was a sophomore when I went down there. So I still had a couple of years, but effectively I got offered a job at a very low amount of pay, <laughs> like an extraordinary. And, and, um, and I mean, look, I, I was very thankful. I didn't know what money meant at that time. I mean, I was like, you know, 20 years old, 19 years old. And um, I just said, man, I got to sort of rethink this a little bit. Um, and so while it was a great thing, I ended up, you know, deciding to go to law school and kind of follow this route. When you initially went to law school, did you have sports agent in mind or did you just think, hey, I'm going to do corporate law, I'm going to do whatever and get that law degree? I always thought, I, I always knew I wanted to go into sports. Um, it was kind of, when I was looking at law schools, I looked at schools, but I more looked at cities. And I've always been a Northeast guy, but you know, I really wanted to go to cities that had a lot of sports and entertainment. Um, I really wanted to go to UCLA Law School. And I didn't get in. Um, it's really hard to get in from out of state. And I'm not sure what it's ranked now, but it, back then it was ranked top 10. It was really ranked very, very high. And I didn't get in. Um, and that was a little disappointing because I thought I wanted to be in LA and, and all of that. But it worked out great. BC is a great school. It was a great school. It still is. And I teach there now. Um, and obviously, in, in terms of going somewhere for professional sports, at least, there's no better city in the country than Boston. So while I was there, there was an arts, entertainment and sports law society, which I was a part of. Um, I was part of setting up a symposium there for a couple of years. After my first year of law school, I was a research assistant for a contracts professor, but I also interned for a football agent, a guy named Brad Blank, um, who was a big time football agent in Boston for a long time. He also did a lot of media. Um, he's kind of still doing it, but not as much as he used to. And I did, you know, I, I was sort of the gopher at the time, you know, I, I filled envelopes. I, I went on a couple recruiting meetings, but not much, but I really worked with his recruiter to help get guys in. And it was, it was neat. Like he represented guys like, you know, Rondé Barber and Tiki Barber. And I mean, he had some, you know, he had some really, really good clients, really legit clients. He represented Mike Mamula when he was the ninth overall pick or seventh overall pick or wherever he was. Like he had some really good clients and it was really good experience. Um, now when I went to, I knew that coming out of law school, I would have to go to a law firm first. Um, you know, I didn't play professionally any sport and, you know, I, I had to take out loans to go to law school. So I needed to pay them back one way, but my goal was always to go to a law firm and be, you know, I started as a corporate lawyer um, and work my way into sports. And I went to one firm, Tester Hurwitz and Tebow, where um, that didn't really work out. Like they just, they were so busy and they were so, public company IPO driven that they just didn't have time for other stuff. But then the second firm that I went to in 2000 Goulson and stores um, allowed me to pursue the sports side, not really the player side, which is why I left and kind of went on my own, but really at least get into the sports arena. And you also founded your own uh, agent or a law firm as well, but Brown yeah. and Rosen. Uh, how did that kind of get you closer to that goal? So, in 2005, you know, I had been practicing law for about, you know, eight, seven, eight years. And I talked to the folks at Goulston. So a little, little backtrack a little bit. When I was at Goulston in 2001, um, John Henry bought the Red Sox. My firm, Goulston and Stores, represented two local guys who tried to buy the team. And I was involved in that deal as a third year associate. I wasn't running the deal by any means. I was a third year associate, but I was involved in the deal and really got involved in the baseball side of that deal. Um, 
our guys didn't end up getting the team. Obviously, Henry did. But then I got to do some other sports stuff there as well, more transactional. But I really wanted to do player side. So if I had stayed at Goulston, um, I would have continued to be a corporate lawyer and probably, you know, 10 to 15 percent of my practice would have been sports related, not player related, but transactional related. And that would have been cool. But I really wanted to do the player side. It was really the, you know, what I'd always been interested in. And if I did that, I really had to go on my own. So I went out and, you know, I'm still a practicing lawyer. All my clients know that. But the focus of what I do is on baseball. So I have I have Brown and Rosen. Um, and then we have our agency, Icon Sports, where I'm a partner, um, you know, with three other guys. And, you know, I, I focus on representing baseball players. I have some other stuff that I do through the law firm, some for my baseball clients, some for um, not baseball clients, you know, things like the hip hop stuff I've talked to you about, which honestly I'd probably do for free um, because it's like old school hip hop licensing representation of like rap groups that I listened to in the 80s and 90s. But the focus of what I've done and the reason I went out on my own was to be a baseball agent. Yeah, a little nugget there. We're going to touch more on that, the, the hip hop and rap group uh, a little bit later on. Uh, but the 2005, so you start Orpheus, which was your first kind of agency. How, did you have clients at the time or how, how did how did that work? Like, how do you start a sports agency if you don't have clients to represent? It's, it's a good question. So the very first year I thought I was going to be Arn Tellum. So when at, at Goulston, I did the Red Sox deal and our guys didn't get it. And then I actually worked on the purchase of the Celtics too, um, for, for clients and they didn't get it either. So I got to know the CBA, the basketball CBA as well. Um, that was the year Wick Rosbeck's group bought the team as well. Um, so I got to work on that as well. So I'm like, all right, I know basketball, I know baseball. Um, I'm going to go be Arn Tellum cause that's what Arn Tellum does. He rep- he's really the only guy out there that represents, you know, professional baseball players and professional basketball players. And he's done it for forever. Um, I really didn't take to the basketball side. I love basketball more than life itself, as you know. I'm a, I mean, you know, us Syracuse folks are annoying to everyone who's not a Syracuse fan. Um, you know, it, it's a huge Syracuse fan. Big, you know, I, I grew up a Pistons fan because I loved Isaiah Thomas. He's on the wall behind me, but I've kind of gone back to the Sixers because that was kind of my first love. And you know, this Ben Simmons thing—that's another conversation. But we can talk about that another day. Um, so anyway, so the first year. I started doing baseball and basketball. I went to a camp. Um, My partner, Chris, who's been my buddy from law school, is still my partner today. Um, He knew about like these guys that needed representation for this Chinese basketball camp in Oregon. And it was not Chinese basketball players. It was American basketball players who were going to go over and try out to go play in China. And I went to this place in Eugene. It wasn't even, I say Eugene, Oregon. It wasn't Eugene, Oregon. It was like an hour and a half from Eugene, Oregon. I flew into Eugene, Oregon, and then got on this random bus and got driven out to this facility and stayed there for three days. And, you know, I'm five foot seven. Everybody there, it was like a big man camp. So everybody's there is six foot 10. Really the only redeeming part of that trip for me was that Craig Forth was there, you know, who... Um, you know, people don't know was on the 2003 Syracuse national championship team. So I basically was like a fanboy to him, you know, all, all, uh, you know, all, all week, but I quickly realized basketball wasn't where I was going. Like I realized it within the course of two or three months and really, really focused on baseball. So to answer your question, I had a buddy of mine from, from law school who became an agent right out of law school. Um, he's worked for a couple companies. He's actually retired now as an agent, he still, he still is a lawyer, but he represented Nick Marcakis his entire career. That was his big guy. So, you know, I really asked him a ton of questions, Mike. It was like, how do you get players? Where do you go get players? That type of thing. So I really just, I, 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 you know, I got a couple referrals from guys who were like low level minor league players, um, you know, who couldn't find an agent. I'm like, well, I don't have any players. I might as well, you know, take these guys on. But really what I did at the beginning was I went down to the Cape Cod League, which is, you know, the premier amateur league in the country, Woodbat, Summer, Collegiate. And um, I live, you know, an hour from there. And I just watched baseball. And I talked to so many guys. You know, now I only recruit, you know, like three to four or five guys a a year. 
um, back then, I mean, when I went to the Cape my first year, Mike, I think I talked to like 25 guys and like from every area of the country, like it was, it was crazy. I focused on guys that I didn't think other agents would be focusing on guys who were seniors in college, um, guys a little under the radar and, and stuff like that. But I made a lot of mistakes too. You know, there was a guy from Northeastern that I really wanted to talk to. Um, and I was at a Cape game and I called him over. And he came over and it wasn't him. It was a different guy. And like, you know, I'm like, Chris, 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 come here. I need to talk to you. He comes over. He's like, my name's Matt. You know, and, and like, I'm like, oh, and I had to kind of figure out quickly who he was, um, you know, and, and play it off that way. But that was really how I did it. And, you know, in my first draft, which was 2006, I actually had two big leaguers. Um, a guy, Chris Pettit, who I still talk to to this day. He's been retired for a long time. Um, but Chris Pettit, you know, played in the big leagues with the Angels. Um, he was a, a, you know, a 20 something round. I think it was 28th round senior signed by the Angels who got to the big leagues, um, you know, 2006. And then Ryan Reed, who was a pitcher at James Madison from Portland, Maine, who was a seventh round pick that I'll be honest, I got lucky on because he was a sophomore eligible and I don't think anyone knew he was. Um and I got lucky that I found that out. And so I went up to Portland, Maine, and he ended up signing with me. And he was a seventh rounder in my first draft. So that was kind of cool. But, you know, I was representing guys like Chris Pettit went to Loyola Marymount. And so I'm flying back and forth to L.A. And, you know, my second draft was 07. And I had Eric Ferris, who played in the big leagues for a while. He was a fourth rounder. Um, and then I had another guy out of LMU. I had this, like, LMU, like, this whole contingent. Um, Angelo Sonko was a fourth rounder in 09. So I was like flying to LA, I was flying to Florida, I was flying all over the place. And obviously I still do that to see, you know, the big league guys and the minor league guys now. But now that I've been doing this for 15, 16 years, I tend to focus more on Northeast players, you know, kind of, you know, from North Carolina, you know, North Carolina or South Carolina up through Maine. You know, I really focus on the Northeast and a lot of the guys that I represent have New England ties. Obviously, like you said, you're scouting, you're looking at the talent, but then it's building that relationship. How, how hard is that sometimes? Because, you know, as a sports agent and they've got, I'm sure, college coaches in their ear, a lot of people in their ears if they're a high school kid coming through or if they're a college kid as well. How hard is it sometimes to build those relationships? It's tough. Um, and you have to find the right guys. The, the most important thing be honest, above all, the most important thing that I look for and that we look for at Icon is character and integrity. It's way more important than even talent because there are a lot of talented guys out there. And, you know, even the most talented may not make it depending. They could get hurt. Things could happen. But my goal at the beginning of the day is to represent a player for his entire career. And that's happened a lot. Um you know, in my career. And, you know, I've also gotten fired, you know, a good, everybody, every agent gets fired. Every lawyer gets fired. It's just, it's just part of the game, but trying to find the person um, and build that relationship. And here's the thing, right? If you, if you start talking to a player when they're in college, 95% of your relationship is with the player. If you start talking to a player when he's in high school, you have to build a relationship with the player and the parents. And usually, you know, if that player goes to college, you're maintaining that relationship with the parents and the player as well. Now there's some players, you know, for example, Mike Brasso is a client of mine. Um, you know, he's, you know, he hit the home run off Chapman last year. Everybody remembers him. Um, I ended up picking him up. He was an undrafted free agent. And I, you know, I was referred to him by a former client of mine, Craig Albernez, who's now the bench coach, the bullpen coach for the San Francisco Giants in the big leagues. And, and Albie was coaching Mike in Australia. And he like DM me, you know, from Sydney and said, Joe, like, you got to sign this guy. Like, you have to sign this guy. Um, so, you know, that's so I ended up signing him when he was in double A. And I'm as close to him, you know, I mean, I'm incredibly close to him. Um, but I didn't represent him in the draft. So it's, a you know, because, I mean, I, I ended up picking him up a couple years after the draft. So in that situation, he's an adult. You know, I've, I've obviously I've met his parents, um, but I don't regularly talk to them or something, you know, that much because, you know, I met him as an adult effectively. But, you know, I've been able to build that relationship really strongly over the last, you know, four or five years. Um, you know, but, you know, but when you're building a relationship, 
in the draft, it's, it's sometimes a longer building relationship and you're building it with not just the player, but with the parents. Um, so you have to find not only the right player, but you have to find the right parents. And sometimes finding the right parents is harder. Yes, I certainly understand that. And talking with uh, some college coaches, it's uh, it's definitely unique uh, when you have those parents involved as well. And name, image, and likeness now is coming to the forefront on the college level. And I, I love that that cup there with the Syracuse uh, with auto on it. Uh, name, image, and likeness. Does that change what you're able to do when you look at the college athletes that you're trying to recruit? Do you have more contact with them? Does that change anything from that standpoint? Well, it's still really new. And, you know, as we've talked about, I am, I've been talking about, you know, not as an agent necessarily, but more as sort of an academic, I guess. I've been talking about name image likeness for years. You know, I, I think this was going to happen. You know, it took a long time to happen. I'm glad it actually happened. The players are able to, you know, make money from their name image likeness at this point, but it's so new. Um, and it's not necessarily, you know, it's state to state, it's college to college, um, and it's player to player. So I, I think there's a lot of things that are still, excuse me, um, you know, being worked out a little bit. Now, how much are, you know, professional, fo you know, college football players, like, you know, there's, you know, college football players are prominent, right? I mean, Buddy Bayheim you know, who you probably follow on Twitter and I follow on Twitter, it seems like he's doing an autograph signing or something every week, right? But he's Buddy Behan, right? Baseball players are different. It's not as popular a sport. Um, it is in the South, but, you know, you represent a player at like, you know, BC or Northeastern or something like that. How many types of opportunities are they going to have? Um, I'm not sure yet. Um, you know, it seems to me so far with NILs that, you know, a lot depends on what type of app, you know, what type of sport you play, but also more, even more so it depends on what your social media following is. Right. Because, you know, Olivia Dunn, who's a gymnast, I believe at LSU um, has, you know, millions of Twitter followers or Instagram followers or TikTok or one of the three or all of the three, I'm not sure. And you ask know, your kids, I'm sure they know. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I'm sure they do. And, you know, she's going to make a ton of money from NILs. And it's, I, I'm, you know, I don't know how good a gymnast she is. I'm sure she's wonderful, but I don't know that she's making her money from being a gymnast. I think she's making her money from her social media following and that's totally fine. So I've had NIL conversations with my players. Um, it's still sort of at the infancy stage for that. The thing I'm a little nervous about, not nervous about, but, you know, we're a medium sized company. We represent, you know, between 60 and 70 players. You know, we have 12 guys in the big leagues this year. You know, we had a first, we had a seventh overall pick in the draft this year. You know, we have first rounders every year, just about every single year. So we're not a mom and pop shop by any means, but we're not this massive company like CAA or Excel or Scott Boris or whatever. They're going to have people at their company that are dedicated and devoted to NILs for players, um, whether it's getting them like $500, you know, for a semester or something, that's $500 that they didn't have. So that's something we're working through right now. We're looking at hiring someone. We probably will and, and working on doing that for our players because on that aspect, we're going to need to compete and make sure that a player that we really want doesn't go to Excel or Boris or CAA simply because they have five marketing guys working for them. Yeah, certainly. Uh, as you and I talked earlier this week, it's a competitive business to begin with. And then, like you said, the, those bigger firms certainly have a little bit of an advantage. I, I want to look at the process of, of a player from a, an agent standpoint. And I, I want to look at it through Josiah Gray, who I, I know is one of your, your clients. He's currently with the Washington Nationals, got a win uh, on Monday night on the road in Colorado, which isn't easy. No. Um, and just his story is very unique. And as you and I talked earlier the, the, this week, you think he's really has a chance to be something special, but he's a guy that pitched at Lemoyne College which is in Syracuse. It was at one point, I think, Division One for baseball only. Um, first of all, how did you find a guy from Lemoyne College and, and see the potential in him? So I rely, even though I do trust my eye and, you know, I go out and, you know, watch players a lot, I really rely a lot and have developed really strong relationships with Northeast area scouts. I mean, scouts, you know, Scouting directors, cross-checkers, everyone. But, 
you know, especially the Northeast area scouts. And I, I, I treat them with, you know, I treat them with respect. I always have whenever I can help them, I do, you know, in any way. And, you know, they return the favor. If they see a guy, you know, they, you know, a lot of them would rather I represent him um, because they know that I'm, you know, that I'll, I'll get the information to them and I'll, I'll work hard in, you know, my goal is to get my player drafted as high as possible. That's it. You know, I want to get my guy drafted as high as possible and get as much money as possible. And, you know, other than that, um, you know, every, every, you know, that, that's really the goal. Um, and they understand that. So I heard from a scout, I was talking to a scout um, one summer and he said, I saw this guy um, in the Hamptons league. It was, you know, a Long Island summer collegiate league his freshman year after his freshman year. And Joe, he's going to be really good. Like he's going to be really, really good. And he told me a story, he went to college as a shortstop. They moved him to the mound and that. So, um, I went to Syracuse to speak, you know, when we were there, there was no sports management program. Right. But now I tend to go back a lot and speak not to the broadcast journalism folks. They don't want to hear from me, but um, you know, the sports management folks, you know, cause a lot of those guys want to be agents and they have the capstone program and things like that. So I went out there one day, it was actually election day. I'll never forget it. Like I will never forget the day of my life because it was election day, 2016. Um, so I went out, I spoke to, um, you know, I, I spoke to Syracuse students that night. I'm in my hotel room. The next morning, I was meeting with JoJo and his high and his college coach Scott Cassidy. And I woke up, going to bed. I, you know, going to bed, you think one thing. I woke up, obviously something else happened. And I go over there at like nine in the morning, and we're both like, "Really? Did that just happen? Like, what? You know, what's going on?" So. I'm sitting there, you know, in, in the, like the clubhouse talking to Jojo, talking to Scott Cassidy. Um, and I had that initial meeting. So, um, I didn't see him initially. I heard it from a scout and then I ended up getting that meeting and, and sort of meeting him at a very early, at an early time. I ended up seeing him that spring. He ended up coming out to pitch at Stonehill, which is pretty close to me. And he was closing that year and he was lights out. And um, he ended up committing to me, um, you know, before the summer started, he ended up pitching in the Cape at Chatham. He was the closer at Chatham. His first outing of the year, I think he gave up three runs. And then after that, I don't think he gave up any runs the rest of the summer. He was unbelievable. And the most amazing thing about it was, so there's, there's two things I want to really praise Jojo for. One, you know, forget about baseball. He's just an unbelievable person, just, you know, like what I want my sons to strive to be like, like, like he's, he's that type of guy. Like, he's just amazing. Like my birthday was the other day, him and his girlfriend sent me, you know, they sent me an edible arrangement. Um, and it was great, but like the note that they sent me with the, with the present was like unbelievable, just like unbelievable. And so his character his, you know, the way he is as a person is just top, top notch. And I have so many guys like that. Like I mentioned, Mike Wade LeBlanc is like that. Like, you know, John Brett, like all my guys, Max Schrock, they're all just great, great, great people. Um, so that's number one on Jojo. But number two, when you have a player, the thing that I was so impressed with about him as a baseball player was this is a guy who didn't pitch a lot, you know, like he pitched in high school. He went to Lemoyne as a, as a shortstop. Um, you know, that's what he primarily played. And then he closed, you know, like he'd go warm up, like, you know, in the ninth inning, like he'd run out to right field or whatever to warm up and he'd go close. But, you know, he became a starter his junior year, obviously, but this is a kid who, who didn't pitch a lot. And all he did was throw strikes. It was unbelievable to me. Like he had no command issues. His mechanics were flawless. Um, and it was perfect. And and the great thing, I'll say this too, because to promote it, his coach, my, uh, Scott Cassidy at LeMoyne, is one of the best coaches I've ever met in my life. And I'll never forget leaving JoJo's last Cape game. I'm driving home and I call Scott Cassidy and I just start talking to him. And basically Scott says, what do you want him to do in the spring? What day do you, do you want him to start? Do you want him to close? Like, you know, what day do you want him to pitch? Do you want him to hit? You know, I mean, I'd never had a coach really ask me that before. 
And I thought it was, you know, it, it was one of the coolest things. And so obviously, like, I'm not going to step on any toes. It's ultimately the coach's call. But, you know, I talked to Scott and I said, it's, you know, he's definitely got to start. Um, I prefer that he not hit. I mean, that's up to JoJo, obviously, and you. Um, but I just don't want him to, like, you know, get hurt. You can DH him once in a while if you want to. But, you know, I prefer that he start. Um, whatever day you want to throw him is fine because, you know, Fridays are like the big days for college, you know, pitchers. But, you know, LeMoyne's D2, so they don't even play on Fridays. They play a doubleheader Saturday. Um, I liked him pitching in the first, you know, in the seven inning games on Saturday because it limits his. So Scott did all of that, and it really put JoJo in a prime, prime position. Now, look, he went out his junior year, and I have to look back at his record. It was a while ago. It was 2018, but I think he was like 12-0 and 0 or something like crazy with a one-something ERA with a gazillion strikeouts and no walks and, you know, whatever innings. So he did the work. But I'll say this. You know, for a D2 player who went to school as a shortstop to be a second round pick, you know, and signed for close to $800,000, that doesn't happen. It, it just doesn't. It just doesn't, especially a Northeast D2 guy. Like you'll see D2 guys from, you know, Oklahoma and Texas and California and stuff like that who play all year round. But for a Northeast guy, and a lot of that had to do with, I mean, obviously it had to do with his performance. But it just had to do with the person he is. I still have scouts that didn't draft him to this day asking me how he is because they just like him as a person so much. Yeah, that's unique. And a unique relationship, like you said, with the coach to have him kind of help you, but it help him as well. So so he gets drafted. He's with the Reds and he gets traded to the Dodgers. And was it with L.A. and in the minor league system that he kind of started to make a name for himself and, and what he could be for – for, for that organization and maybe another one after that? So he got traded on his 21st birthday, which is kind of neat, right? He called me. I had talked to him earlier in the day and, you know, wishing him happy birthday. And, you know, Riley, his girlfriend was down there with him. And um, he calls me at like, I think it was like 10 o'clock at night. He's like, Joe, I just got traded. So it was crazy. Like it was just a whirlwind. So, now, he, so as his agent, you don't find that out first? No, he does? No. Well, sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't. This trade. I'll talk, I'll talk about the Nationals trade in, in a bit. So that one I found out first. But the normally, no. Normally, the player finds out first. Because if, if someone – everybody's so scared of leaking everything that if they tell an agent, they feel like the agent's going to – I'm not going to leak anything, but they think that, you know, they think that we will, and they're not going to tell us in advance. So he called me and said, I just got traded. Um, but the thing was, look, the Reds – have definitely turned the corner on development over the last, you know, five years, um, especially the last three years. But no one out develops the Dodgers. You know that. I mean, it, it's just so for him to get traded from the Reds to the premier development organization in baseball was was kind of neat, you know, and they really helped him become a big leaguer. I mean, that's really what they did, you know, and. You know, I think he would he, not. I think he would have gotten to the big leagues last year if there wasn't, you know, the COVID situation. I'm I'm almost positive it. Like if there was a full year last year, he probably would have started in AAA, maybe AA, but probably AAA, and he probably would have gotten to the big leagues sooner than later. That's okay, but they really helped develop him. And you know, when we talked about Mike the other day, like I, I just think his character, first and foremost. But he's a really, really special pitcher. And I know it's high. I mean, look, I, I know I'm talking about one of the best pitchers, probably the best pitcher I've ever seen in my life in Pedro Martinez. Um, but that's who he reminds me of a little bit. And like Pedro had the changeup, JoJo has the curveball, and I get it. But there's just something when he's on the mound. It's just – it's composure. It's confidence. It's just like – I'm, you know, perfect example the other night, right? He He's pitching in Colorado for the first time. And I did not have a conversation with him about pitching in Colorado before he pitched in Colorado. Um, but, you know, his first fastball was 92. And, you know, normally his first fastball is 95, right? Like he's 90, you know, 94, 96, just with about just every fastball. And, his, you know, it, it goes down a little bit. You just got to grip it differently and, and do other things, right? So the first guy in Colorado, Tapia, you know, hits a smash to right field, lines out. 
Um, and then I don't know if you saw, but then he hit Brendan Rodgers in the head, right, with a one-two fastball. Um, and you could tell JoJo was really upset. Like, obviously, he didn't want to do that. It was a one-two pitch. He was going inside and hit him in the head. Um, and Brendan Rodgers, and I think he's okay, but he ended up coming out of the game. And, you know, JoJo's 23 years old. And he hasn't been pitching competitively for that long, right? And, like, that that could take a toll on a guy. And after he was lights out. Like, he faded a little bit in the six. He walked a couple of guys, ended up giving the bases loaded triple. But from one, two, three, four, five, other than that Tapia line drive, and I think that was it. Like, that was the only hard hit ball in the first five innings. And he was lights out. So the way he came back from that, like, I just think he's special. Like, I, I just think he's going to be a special player and a special pitcher for a very, very long time. Um, and I just see superstar in him. I always have. So earlier this year is when he, he finally did have a chance to make his Major League Baseball debut. Mm -hmm. He did that with the Dodgers. When do you find out about that? Because I saw that you were there in Los Angeles for, for that debut. So obviously you're going from Boston to, to LA out on the West coast. So when do you find out who tells you that, that your client is getting the call up? So he, so I kind of, we knew on that day that there was an opening and Jojo was banged up at the beginning of the year. He came back, um, a few weeks before in Oklahoma city and he had had like three outings, I think two or three outings and he was lights out. Like he was, he was back to himself. He was throwing 95, you know, everything was working and you know, he was the guy, like we thought that he might be caught up. I think it was a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Um, we thought that he might be caught up that day. Um, and I had, all, I actually talked to someone in the front office with the Dodgers who normally um, I've known this guy for a long time. And normally they just, you know, you ask them, hey, are they going to get called up? And I don't ask that a lot, but they'll normally just say no. Like, or they'll just normally say, I can't tell you. Um, and he didn't say that. He didn't say he was going to get called up. But, like, all indications were, not even just from that call, were that he was going to get called up. So I had a crazy week that week, Mike. Like, I went to Kansas City, um, you know, for the Frankie Mazzucato signing. You know, he was the seventh overall draft pick this year. Um, I got lucky. This never happens. I'm in Kansas City for that Saturday night when Frankie signed. Wade LeBlanc, who's been a longtime client of mine, who had an unbelievable year this year for this for St. Louis um, before he got hurt, was starting the next day in in St. Louis against the Giants. And John Brebby is on the Giants, so I'm like, I can drive three hours to St. Louis. Um, so I drive from Kansas City on Sunday morning to St. Louis to see LeBlanc and Brebbia. And as I'm pulling into the hotel, I get a call from Jojo that says, I got the call. And of all things that I do, look, I've done a lot of arbitrations. I've done a lot of free agents, a lot of first round draft picks, like all of that. I've been a lawyer, you know, I'm 48 years old now. I've been a lawyer for a long time. There's nothing better than the debut. And when the guy gets a call up, there's just nothing better than that. It's the best, it's the best part of everything. Um, now Mike Brasso's home run in the ALDS last year was pretty good, but, um, like the call up when a guy calls you, um, you know, and I've had a few of them in the last, you know, last couple of years. I mean, you know, Jojo got called up this year. Um, you know, we had three other guys get called up this year, Ryan Valet, Jonathan Heasley and Greg Dykeman. Um, you know, Max Schrock got called up last year in COVID, even though that kind of stunk cause I couldn't go, um, you know, Brasso the year before, you know, so we've had a lot of call ups in the last few years. Um, but when he get, you know, when he, I'm pulling into the hotel. So, you know, he's like, I'm starting Tuesday or actually he was the bulk guy, right? He didn't end up, he didn't end up start. So I'm like, do I have enough clothes? Am I here? <laughs> Whatever. But I ended up, I had a flight back Monday morning to Boston and it was just too complicated to change every, it wasn't like I was in Chicago. Um, you know, I was in St. Louis. And so I just ended up flying back on Monday to Boston said hi to my wife and kids and then flew out Tuesday. But the good thing I got was LA is three hours behind. Right. So I got that extra three hours. So I ended up flying out Tuesday to LA to see his debut. And, you know, his mom was there, his brothers were there, his girlfriend was there, his, his girlfriend's whole family was there. Um, you know, he got interviewed. It was, it was a really, it's a really cool experience. There's literally nothing better than the, when a guy debuts, it's just the coolest. It's just, 
it, it's it's what makes this job. It definitely does. I would think. I mean, again, you have three kids. It would, it's kind of like seeing your your kids succeed. It like is you said, when you get that that news that they got the call up. Not just you know their hard work, but your hard work to get them to that point. And, and it certainly comes to fruition at that point. It is. It's exactly. It's exactly like it is. I do feel, especially you know, at the beginning, I was more like an older brother, right? Now, now that I'm, you know, at the beginning, I was thirty years old, or thirty two when I started this. You know, now I'm forty eight. So, um, you're the you're the young dad, though. You're the I, young I'm dad. The, exactly, exactly. But it is. It is. It's just like that feeling. Look, there. Not everything. I don't want to make this business out to be. You know the. You know. I know it's a sexy business and whatever, like, you know, everybody wants to be a sports agent and like, it, this is what I've always wanted to do and I'm ecstatic about it and there's nothing I would change. Um, but it's not, I mean, you know, there's some tough parts about it, right? I mean, like, you know, there's big companies out there bigger than us that all they do are go around and try to poach players in the draft. And when you get into the big leagues and, and tell them I represent Derek Jeter and I represent this guy and, um, you know, and it's not like, like I said, it's not like we, you know, we had 12 big leaguers. We have two big free agents this year, three big free agents this year, um, you know, with Andrew Heaney, Stephen Matz, and Wade LeBlanc. And, you know, we're doing arbitrations every year. We're doing free agencies every year. You know, I'm with the group that represented Ken Griffey Jr. his entire career. Um, you know, Brian Goldberg was his agent. He's still working with us part time. Um, so, you know, we've been around a lot. We've done a lot of really good deals, but, you know, these big, bad wolf companies come in and try to steal our guys. And you just have to hope that you built enough of a relationship with a guy and shown them that you do good work, that they'll stay. And most of the time they stay, but not all the time. And those are difficult times. You know, I, I've, I married my high school girlfriend, so I haven't really had to deal with any breakups like that in a long, long, long time. Um, but that's what it is. You know, when a player who you've represented, you know, calls you up and effectively, you know, you know, it's the same thing. I'm going to go in another direction, right? Like that's what they always say, like making it sound like we don't know what that means. It's not you, it's me. It's exactly, that's exactly what it is. You've been awesome, Joe. Like there's nothing I would change, but I think these guys are better, better for my career. Um, it's not true. You know, they're, re you know, they're, re they've represented more guys. That doesn't mean they've represented, they've done better jobs. Um, in fact, I would say the opposite. Um, it's just they've, you know, they're bigger. That's it. Um, and so that's the part of the business that really stinks and you have to deal with. And we deal with every day. But that's why we go back to what we talked about is you go, you, you want to represent not only the best player, but the best person. Because the best person sees what you've done for them and doesn't see what someone else says they can do for them. Yeah, it certainly is a, a tough business when you look at it. And, uh, you know, this year you talk about trades and, and the craziness of uh, the Major League Baseball trade deadline this year. And, again, you go back to Josiah Gray, and he was uh, a big part of maybe the biggest trade potentially during that time that that really helped out. I think both teams, obviously the Dodgers who got Max Scherzer and Trey Turner, but then the Nationals who got uh, Josiah Gray part of that package as well, Kiebert Ruiz, a catcher in the minor league system for the Dodgers as well. What was that like to be kind of in the middle of, of that frenzy at the very end and, and have Josiah be part of that big trade? So that one was very different than the first one. The first one, Jojo had just been drafted. He gets a call. He tells me that's kind of what normally happens. You know, this one, he's in the big leagues, right? They were in San Francisco, I think. Um, and they were flying to Arizona. And he was scheduled to start the next day. And um, he's on the airplane and I'm on Twitter and, you know, flowing through. And, you know, everyone thought Scherzer was going to San Diego, right? Everybody thought yeah. Scherzer and Turner were going to San Diego because that's what was reported earlier on. And it didn't end up happening. And then I see that he's going, you know, he's going to the Dodgers, right? That, that, that Scherzer and Turner are going to the Dodgers. And all I'm thinking to myself is if they're getting Max Scherzer and Trey Turner, there's no way, you know, they, for, first I saw Ruiz and I'm like, all right, that makes sense. And I'm like, well, it's not just going to be Ruiz. like, there's no way. I mean, it's like the best pitcher in baseball along with one of the top, you know, the, the, I mean, he's leading the league in hitting, right. Turner's leading the league in hitting yeah. and he's got another year. Um, so I'm like, it's gotta be. And so then you start seeing rumors on Twitter about Jojo's name 
and I can't remember who I saw it was Ken Rosenthal or John Heyman or one of the guys reported while Jojo's on the plane that it was him. Um, and so I called the front office guy cause Jojo's on a plane, like, you know, and his Wi-Fi wasn't working. I don't think, I don't know what was going on with there, but I texted him and I'm like, stay off Twitter, <laughs> stay off Twitter for a little while. Um, and he, and he like, he's like, oh, I see or whatever. Finally, his Wi-Fi started working by the time he landed, he had been traded. Now it wasn't official. I think until the next day, cause they needed to work out some details and Scherzer had a no trade clause and stuff like that. But, um, that was a very different scenario. That was one where I don't even want to say I knew it before him, but the media reported it. It got leaked somehow. I mean, everything always gets leaked, but the media reported it. And look, I'm not blaming the media. You know, I mean, that's my background. You're just doing your job. Like I get it. Right. Um, but the media knew about it before Jojo knew about it and before I knew about it. And that doesn't happen a lot. Like that doesn't happen as much as you'd think it was, there's all these rumors reported around trade deadline and, and stuff like that. And some of it happens, some of it doesn't. I remember getting like DMS from, you know, certain guys in the media about Heaney, you know, who ended up getting traded to the Yankees saying like the Phillies are going to take it trade for him. I'm hearing the Phillies I'm hearing, um, was it Tampa? Like it was this. And obviously none of that happened. And he ended up going to the Yankees who no one thought he was going to go to, um, you know, and it wasn't reported at the time. So, but that was a really unique situation. Now, in terms of him going to the Nationals, I think this could be – look, the Dodgers have developed him, right? He's a big leaguer now, and he's ready to go out there and compete at the highest level. Going to the Nationals, who are not a small market team by any means. They won the World Series three years ago, right? Um, or two years ago, excuse me, 2019. Um, 2019, right? They just won two years ago, yeah, right? Yeah. 2018 was the Red Sox, right? So, okay. Um, 2019. Um, and you know, they're going to build something, you know, Mike Rizzo is not going to like rebuild for two years. Like they're going to go out this off season and, and spend money. Um, so I think this can be really good for his career. He's an East coast guy. He'll, you know, he immediately stepped into that rotation. He'll be expected to be part of that rotation for a long period of time. Whereas when you're with the Dodgers, you know, no one thought they were going to sign Trevor Bauer this off season. I'm sure at this point they probably wish they didn't, but that's okay. But, you know, when they signed Trevor Bauer, that's just one more Cy Young Award winner ahead of him. And now in D.C., it's his spot, right? Um, you know, Patrick Corbin's pitched better lately. I'm sure he'll be back with the team next year. You know, he's been really good in the past. Also Syracuse guy, right? Um, you know, hopefully Strasburg will be back. He's been hurt for two years. And they have some other young guys like – you know, Fetty's, you know, Fetty, I mean, Ross is hurt next year, but they got some other guys, Cade Cavalli's coming up. So like this team isn't that far away. Um, in my opinion, you know, you know, people will kill me for saying this and maybe I shouldn't say it because I certainly don't represent him. But in my opinion, right now, you know, it, it's hard to say anybody's better than Mike Trout, but right now today, September 29th, say September 29th, um, Juan Soto is the best player in baseball. Like he doesn't get out. Like I know he went over four last night, but he just doesn't, he doesn't get out. So you have the best player in baseball out in right field. Lane Thomas has stepped up. Um, you know, they have some other parts, obviously, you know, obviously Josh Bell has another year. He's played well. Ruiz is there. Luis Garcia has shown that he's a pretty good player. They need to rework the bullpen. The bullpen's tough. Um, but they have, and they're in the NL East, which of all divisions is the division you probably want to be in. Right. Um, or, or at least one of them that you can compete because the Braves are going to win that division this year with the worst record, I believe, of any division winner. Um, so there's no reason they can't compete this year. And so I think he would have been in the Dodgers rotation. I really do because he's that type of player. And maybe, you know, maybe there's a few more marketing opportunities in LA than there are in DC. But at the same time, I think he's got a chance to be like the main part, like him and Juan Soto and maybe Josh Bell, if, you know, if he stays and Ruiz ha have, you know, the chance to be like, you know, the dudes on the flags at the stadium, right? Like those are the guys, right? Like, you know, those are the guys, like I went down the D, you know, I'm, I'm really curious because I'm going to see his last start this weekend. Um, I went to see his start against Philly a few weeks ago and there wasn't a gray shirt in the, in the, uh, in the store yet. There better be now. 
I, ho- I hope there is now. And if not, by next season, there I'm sure I'm sure there certainly will be. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be part of that rotation next year for sure. And uh, as you said, a very bright future. And uh, I love that. I love to see how that that kind of evolution goes uh, from again, like you said, his college days, how you find out about him to to where he is right now. And you you touched on it. You teased it a little bit earlier. We got to we got to end on this um, again. You you represented an iconic hip hop band. It, you know. You kind of had that buried in your bio as uh, as I was looking at it, and I had to follow up. And uh, can you tell us who that was, and, and and a little bit about maybe the negotiations that that you dealt with at that time? Yeah, I, I can, and um, I can I can talk about who it was. It was actually a few, and we only got into one. But so I, I preface this to say that you know I'm 48 years old. I know I've said that a couple of times, but I grew up in the 80s and, and 90s. Right? We went to college from 91 to 95. Um, and I was in high school, obviously, from you know 87 to 91. I grew up. I don't really listen to newer hip hop now, um, so it's sometimes hard to talk. Like some of my players do, but like you know, everybody's little this and young that now, and I, I just I can't keep them apart. I tell them apart. But that's all I listened to in the 80s and 90s. You know, Tribe Called Quest, Public Enemy, De La Soul. Like those were you know those were my guys. Um, that's all I listened to. You know and um, you know, you know, one of my best friends from, you know, probably my best friend from college, Jim Gallero, who I know, you know, who's, you know, the producer on ESPN game day. Um, that's how we became best friends because like we were the guys on day seven at Syracuse who listened to hip hop. Like that was it. Right. So I had an opportunity, a buddy of mine, um, was friends with DMC, you know, Daryl McDaniels from run DMC. And, I don't know what their lawyer, like, obviously they've had, I mean, they've been, they're older than me, right? Like, so they've been around a lot longer Um, and something was going on with their lawyer, but they were doing a licensing deal, not for music because they're not really making new music anymore. D is a little bit, but like one DMC isn't right. Um, And maybe they are, and I don't know about it, but like, you know, they're not making, you know, there's no King of Rock coming out, you know, any, anytime soon. And they were doing a licensing deal, um, which is, you know, one specialty of mine, you know, I do a lot of licensing, like brand licensing, where, you know, someone licensings, you know, it's, it's like NIL deals, right? You're, you're licensing your name image likeness to a company and they would go out and, and make run DMC shirts and hats and, and things like that. Um, so I did this deal for run DMC. I got to know, I didn't really get to know run very well, actually. Like, I don't even know if, I think I met him once, but very, very briefly. Um, but I got to know D very, very well. And uh, great guy, like unbelievable guy. And I've actually had some other legal dealings with him through other clients and stuff like that. Um, but he he was great, and I did this deal, and it was a big deal, Mike. Like it was it was a, it was a it was a large it was a you know they got a lot of money for it, right? And so I did this deal, and then my buddy Josh, who kind of like was friends with with D, we had all these other old school rap groups come to us, and we're like, man. If they could do that for DMC, what can they do for me? Now, you got to understand, right? Run DMC is the most iconic hip hop band and probably one of the most iconic music groups of all time. Yeah. So even though they're probably not my favorite rap group of all time, Tribe Called Quest would be, in terms of brand licensing, there's no question on who's going to get more money, right? Like Run DMC is like the Rolling Stones. I mean, like it's that big. So these other hip hop groups came and I did some deals for them. Nowhere near the amount of money the run DMC got, but I, you know, I worked, I did some trademark work for De La Soul. Um, I did a licensing deal for naughty by nature and it was just cool. Like, you know, I would have done it for free. I mean, I, I really would have, like I said, like it was, it was really cool. Like I got to hang out with the guys that I listened to, you know, growing up and, um, you know, Naughty by Nature opened in the New Kids show at the Garden right before COVID. And like, I was like, you know, I had like unbelievable seats. I'm not, I, I would admit it if I was a New Kids fan. I'm just, I just wasn't like, I just, that wasn't my thing. Like I would admit it, you know, I, I kind of dig the Backstreet Boys, but like New Kids just weren't my thing growing up. Um, But, you know, I'm at this show where it's like New Kids, Debbie Gibson, Tiffany and Naughty by Nature and we went backstage and hung out with Naughty by Nature in their like, I can't remember what they called it. It was like the plush room. It was like some crazy and, you know, Tretch is walking around in a white bathrobe. I got pictures. I'll show you the pictures sometime. And it was really, really cool. And it's just like, that's not really, you know, 
licensing and like that type of thing, that is what I do as a lawyer. And like, you know, that is part of what I do. And I do it for baseball players. I've done it. Um, you know, we started working with this um, apparel company in New Hampshire called Power Forward, which does a lot of basketball guys, but it's, it's sort of name image likeness shirts for, for a couple of guys and stuff like that. And I negotiated the deals there. So it is what I do. But, you know, I would not consider, even though I teach entertainment law at BC Law School, I wouldn't really consider myself an entertainment lawyer. My partner, Chris, is more of an entertainment lawyer. But, you know, that was a really cool experience. And I'd love to do it again. There were rumors that I was going to do one for Public Enemy, and that never happened. And honestly, if that had happened, I don't even know if I could have done it. Like, if I went up to Chuck D, I wouldn't have even been able to talk to him. You know, it, it would have been it would have been so neat. So, um yeah, it was it was cool stuff, and uh, I'm glad I'm glad I had that opportunity, and I definitely have some cool pictures from that from those experiences. And my question, the, the biggest question is your kids. Do they think you're cool now that you represented the those rap groups, or they have no idea who they they are? They have no they had no idea who they are. I I did I did a deal, um, I did some work for Diplo. You know, made the guy you know the idiot like I. So not my thing, right? I mean. Major Lazer's great. I listened to some of their songs. That, like my oldest son, thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And obviously, he loves the baseball park because he's a baseball player and he loves meeting the guys and stuff like that. But like the old school hip hop guys, my kids couldn't care less. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Great stories, Joe. I, I greatly appreciate your time and uh, certainly the insight uh, of what it is to be a sports agent. Um, you know, the, the good, the bad, and and and. You know, everything that goes along with that, I think that's uh, very insightful. And, and again, we greatly appreciate uh, you joining us here today and spending a little time with us here in the front row. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Anytime, man. All right. Thank you, Joe. Take care. See you guys. You've got some rap and stuff. Now you're speaking JR's language here. <laughs> hey, JR, you, look, you, 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 you look younger than me, though. So, like, you must have been – how old are you? 42. Oh, okay. So you, yeah, you got some of that then, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Tretch, Tretch is one of the most underrated MCs in hip hop history. <laughs> Absolutely, that's I've always He's said incredible. that. It's it, it's, it's un, it is it's unbelievable. It, it is really really unbelievable. And there's, I'll tell you a, another. This is like a little bit of a a fanboy story, a little bit. But um, I didn't do any work with him, so it wasn't really probably something to talk about. But. Eric Ferris, who I mentioned, who was like, you know, my fourth rounder in 07, his cousin, Tina, was the tour manager for the Roots, who are, after Tribe, probably my favorite rap group of all time. Yes. And I will go to my deathbed saying that Black Thought is the best MC of all time, right? There, there's like, I will, absolutely. Like, yeah, Rock M, KRS, but Black Thought is different Black levels. Thought is on a whole nother level. To different whole level. Nother. So and these streams of thought albums that he's come oh, out with, oh, it's it's so, unbelievable. So I'm at spring training in Arizona years ago, and Eric knew how much I loved the he loved the roots too. But he picked, you know, he's like, meet me at this random hotel in Phoenix at this time. So I get into his car, we drive into this back alley in Phoenix, we like hop a fence. And I'm like, where are we going? And so we go to this tent. And there's like this festival in Phoenix at this night and I'm in the roots tent and I'm sitting there and I actually got to be pretty good friends. And I still talk to him to this day with Kamal, who's like the, the, the keyboard okay. guy. Yeah. Um, Cause he actually had a son who was a baseball player. He ended up playing football somewhere. I think he's a temple or somewhere playing football, but I'm in this tent with black thought and Questlove, And then we're on stage. There's this little area on stage and I'm there with black thought and Questlove. And I'm like, I can't even think straight. Like, this is... No, there's no way. No way. <laughs> <laughs> You're blowing JR's mind right now. I know. Crazy. I, saw him, um, I saw him live at uh, the House of Blues in Myrtle Beach. And oh. it, was, it was by far the best concert I've ever been to in my life. Yeah, they're, they're, fa they're yeah, fantastic. The fact that you said that about Tretch is like, you're my man now. Like... Tretch is so uh, underrated. So underrated. So underrated. The only and he's Eminem's favorite rapper. So, I mean, he's got to be great, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the reason I think he's underrated is because OPP was their big song, which was like a pop song. But, like, that dude. They were commercial. They were so it, commercial. But that it, dude. It, oh, there's <laughs> nothing. He was, he was incredible. He's also a crazy person, which is probably not surprising. Yes. Yeah. Which is why him and Tupac were probably so close. It, it's exactly right. Vin, Vin Rock's normal as hell like he's great yeah, not yeah. the rapper treaches 
Right. Um, but great dude, like yeah. awesome. So. Yeah. Awesome. You're not you're not gonna play this part, are you? Oh, know. I'm still recording. This is good. Right. <laughs> good stuff right here. Yeah, I think, I think you two need your own podcast. There we go. Sport tie sports and hip hop together. Exactly. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today in the front row. And my uh, special thanks to uh, Joe Rosen, the sports agent, spending some time with us here today, and uh, certainly great insight on what it is to be a sports agent especially on the Major League Baseball level, different players that he represents. And uh, great to hear about uh, his work with Josiah Gray. Check him out uh, with the Washington Nationals. Certainly going to be part of that rotation in the future. Again, uh, for our uh, creator, producer, director, J.R. Quitman, and everybody else who helps us out here on this, I am Mike McCarroll. We appreciate you joining us and hope that you do so for Episode 3 coming soon in the front row with Mike McCarroll. Have a great day, everybody.